The Guardian. Hello and welcome to this week's Books Podcast with me, Sean Kane. Me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. This week, we're talking to Tash Orr about his new novel, Weed the Survivors, which paints a grim picture of the migrant experience in Southeast Asia and the rapid change sweeping across the region. So now what you have in countries that are newly middle class or aspiring middle class like Malaysia, migrants from Bangladesh, Nepal, from Myanmar, who are the new, the new immigrants? And the particular tragedy of this situation is that they are now doing the jobs and being treated in the way that our grandparents or great-grandparents were treated. And yet, unthinkingly, we meet out to them the same treatment that was meted out to us. But first, since this podcast is being published on what may or may not be Shakespeare's birthday, we open with a new book on a writer so emblematic of this particular European country that he has become sort of a secular patron saint. It's called This is Shakespeare, and its author Emma Smith is a professor at Oxford University. So Claire, I was the one that was actually the big fan of Emma Smith because I first saw her at a sort of publishing do, and um, I was immediately taken with her because Shakespeare had been this sort of big, scary figure for me as a little Australian learning about grand European culture. And then I met this woman and she was really, really irreverent of him, like clearly loves him because she specialises in Shakespeare, but she was she was so willing to make fun of him, I sort of took to her immediately. Yeah, she says on her, the cover flap of the book, she says um, she enjoys silent films, bird watching and fast cars. <laughs> <laughs> Which for a professor of Shakespeare is, is quite refreshing, really. Um, well, actually, I was a bit resistant to bringing this in for all sorts of reasons which we will go into on the podcast in the interview but I was entirely won over by it because what she does is she gives you license to appreciate him on your own terms and I you know I went to the university that she's at and I was a theatre critic and I was sort of thoroughly sometimes bored sometimes intimidated by him but I also love him and she talks about the gappiness. I think that's probably the key thing is his gappiness because he'd showed things, he didn't tell things. There are all sorts of things we don't know. There are big gaps in the plays, but there's also a gap between us and him, his historical period and ours. And we don't, there are things we just don't know about him. It's a collection of essays, isn't it? Each of which focuses on a particular play. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a question which we discuss at some length about which ones she left out. And <laughs> <laughs> after we'd stopped talking, she admitted that she was rather sad about leaving out Henry V particularly because of a very interesting thing about whether he was a, a war criminal or not. Mm. And a bit of editing, there's a duplication in Henry V of him deciding to execute French prisoners and if it happens at the first it means he broke the conventions of war right. and if it happens at the end it's because the French have already done it so it's just it's just revenge however she misses that play out because there's so much to talk <laughs> about in the other ones <laughs> so did it, did this book change how you think of Shakespeare as a person yeah I mean it, it did I, I just found myself actually sort of chuckling to myself as I was reading it which is quite <laughs> quite rare because it just all these little sparking insights I thought yeah, I hadn't thought of that before. And some of the things I probably should have thought of, but I just hadn't. And I'm somebody who's seen quite a lot of Shakespeare in my time. So I think if I feel like that, then a lot of people will feel like that. Hmm. And she, you know, she says in her epilogue, as well as the 20 sections for the 20 plays, she has an epilogue in true Shakespearean form and says that he's permissive, modern, challenging, gappy, frustrating, ambiguous, resourceful, provoking, necessary... In short, she says he's somebody you could have a drink and a good conversation with, which sort of is like Emma Smith, really. Mm. 
Emma, welcome to the studio. Now, Thanks I, so much. Bef- I have to admit that I had resistance to asking you in because I thought, partly I thought this is about plays. Why would we want to talk on a books podcast about Shakespeare because he's a dramatist? But also because as a previous theatre critic, I have sat through hours and hours and hours of very bad Shakespeare, including one in which Lady Macbeth, it was an outdoor production, Lady Macbeth, they'd forgotten to waterproof the bottom of Lady Macbeth's gown and it poured down. And poor thing, she, she ended up like Quasimodo, sort of hobbling around trying to pull her train around. <laughs> but this book, This is Shakespeare, is an absolute delight and I found myself in bed <laughs> chortling away. Oh, um, that's wonderful. Totally took me by surprise. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, I too have sat through some really boring Shakespeare and that is my answer really to there's a kind of truth to people saying Shakespeare wrote for the theatre it's the theatre that brings it to life but it's one of those pieties that actually isn't really always true there's a bit of Empress New Clothes about it we have all been bored to death haven't we yeah in the theatre and and I do think we're much too reverential towards Shakespeare in most classical British theatre it's much too long but what is great about this book is you allow yourself to be paradoxical so even in that statement there's a paradox that you say you know you're questioning the idea that it's all about the theatre and yet you also very clearly say these plays some of these plays were written by actors as much as by Shakespeare because they were reconstructed yeah so I, I mean that is a paradox the thing about Shakespeare is right from the start the plays were read the plays were printed for people to read there was an experience of reading which had was different, I'm sure, from going to the theatre, as it always is, but was a separate separate way of experiencing Shakespeare and of enjoying Shakespeare. That's one of the things I want to put over in this book, that Shakespeare can be read. You don't need to read every single word. It's not about understanding every footnote and following in that way. It's more about some large arcs and some large, larger shapes. And there are things you can get from that that actually you can't get from the theatre. For one thing, you can get more of a sense of paradox and possibility. I think theatre directors have to move beyond that in order to give us a clear take on the play they can't really uh, simultaneously hold two views of why a character does something you have to be clear with your actors this is why you're doing it whereas if you're reading you can be in that kind of imaginative space where it could be one thing or it could be the other and I I think Shakespeare is really uh, well pitched for that kind of reading. So for example you talk about Romeo and Juliet and you, you spend a bit of time on the sonnet at the beginning which is a complete plot spoiler in in modern terms just gives the whole plot away. Yeah, and I'm really interested in Romeo and Juliet as a play. We, coming to it in the 21st century, already know it before we come to it. It's got that already happenedness. But it does too in the 1590s when people went to it because uniquely among Shakespeare's plays, it's got this complete plot spoiler, two households both like in dignity, you know, star-crossed lovers take their life, all that stuff. You know, two minutes after you've sat down at the theatre in 1595, you know, there's nothing to play for. And so I try to talk a bit about that in a historical context. Uh, It's not completely clear that audiences at this time were interested in sort of surprising endings. There's a lot of cultural capital to be experienced in retelling stories that were already known. But in lots of ways, our own contemporary culture is pretty much like that too. If you see a movie trailer you know pretty much what's going to happen. I mean, we're not that big on surprise. But I also try and think, can you have a spoiler in a tragedy? You know, is tragedy already (laughs) spoilt, both in plot terms, but in, in some other terms, it's already going to happen and perhaps in a way already has happened. And you talk about Romeo and Juliet as a subverted comedy in a way. Completely. I mean, the idea of young people 
trying to get together against their parents. That's an absolutely classic rom-com setup. You know, romantic comedy, a genre which is still completely with us, is about a couple for whom there is some obstacle. And that obstacle figure in the Elizabethan period, as in the, the classical drama that Shakespeare's influenced by, is usually a parent or a, some kind of authority figure who says this can't happen. And we see Shakespeare doing that in Midsummer Night's Dream, which he's writing probably about the same time as Romeo and Juliet. So I think Romeo and Juliet's a comedy that goes wrong through haste. It's a kind of comedy that goes too fast and maybe overshoots itself. Everything about the play from the age of Juliet, much, much too, 14 years old, much too young to be married. And was young then. That's completely the thing. Completely yeah. so, completely so. The age of marriage for Elizabethans was pretty much about now, mid-twenties. Everybody, the reason that Shakespeare tells us so insistently how old she is, is to, re- is to remind us this is a child. There's a wonderful bit where she says how eager she is for Romeo to arrive. And she says she's like a child who has new clothes before a festival and is impatient so to wear dressing, them. So she's dressing up in the idea of... Being That's in love. right. It's a complete. There's a one of the things I love about uh, Baz Luhrmann's film uh, is the way he does Juliet's bedroom, which is going to be you know the location of this sexual night with Romeo, and it's a it's a tween or a teen's bedroom with all these cuddly toys on the bed, and it's really very brilliantly captures this slightly overgrown child that is Juliet. So everything's hasty. Even I started to think again about the two hours traffic of our stage. This play could never have been two hours long, but the something right at the beginning that gets us going a bit too fast. And, and your thing, which was, I don't know why it was a revelation to me, because I've seen this almost as many times as I've seen any other Shakespeare. The thing about if Romeo hadn't, it's like a play about premature ejaculation. It is. You actually use that yeah, phrase. Yeah, it's about coming too soon. Everything so so comes if Romeo had just waited a tiny bit, yes. she would have come back to life. Yeah, and I was trying to think, there's been some lovely theories of, of narrative which say, you know, we understand narrative like we understand sex. It's about anticipation and foreplay leading to climax and they've got to be in, in the right order. And, you know, this is a play which needs to learn to take its time a bit. And I think, I think that's sort of sexual, it's a play about sex it's about too early sex but it's also a play that now we've started on this metaphor it's just going to be it's going to be nightmarish aren't it but to kind of spill, <laughs> you're never going to get out no of we're never going to get out of it spills out too quickly you know get, get, can't wait just and can't it's a wait. young person's play because you, you've organized play. these plays chronologically which is also gives lots of interesting insights for those of us who are not actual specialists but you put it back to back with Midsummer Night's Dream, which you point out is about delayed gratification. It's the opposite of Romeo and Juliet. Does that suggest that actually it's not about Shakespeare not being quite in control of his craft, that he had all this premature ejaculation stuff going on in Romeo and Juliet and then went on to deferred gratification, that it was a sort of deliberate craft decision? Well, I think that's a really interesting point to say these are two, these are explorations of two different approaches to sexual and narrative kind of gratification. And I'm quite drawn to that as you ask the question, except in one way that I think is a bit of a trap for Shakespeareans, for people like me, never to see anything wrong with Shakespeare and always to see any possible flaw or, or moment that's out of control or inconsistency as itself a super clever, super controlled piece of artistry. And sometimes it is worth saying maybe this runs away a bit from Shakespeare. Maybe this is a bit of a mistake. Maybe it's not all entirely intentional and, and under his control. But you're, but you're right. These are two plays back to back which have got some really interesting things to say about each other. And it's a great question whether Pyramus and Thisbe, which is the 
hilarious sort of slapstick tragic play about lovers who can't be together and who are mistakenly die think each thinking the other is dead whether that's a sort of preemptive of Romeo and Juliet or Shakespeare's own sly take looking back at this great high romantic drama and since we're on that you make the point that there's a sort of rather unnecessary speech by Puck immediately after that which is probably because they had to do a very quick costume change because of this doubling of actors <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely so the the idea that Theseus and Hippolyta, the rulers of Athens, are doubled the same actors, but also really the same people in some more psychological way as Oberon and Titania. That There is a moment at the end of the play where there's a little bit of effort. Puck has to say something not really particularly meaningful. And that it's probably about the minimum length you could get away with for a costume change. You know, often people were sewn into costumes, haven't got zips and press studs and all the quick things. It's like another example in at the end of As You Like It, where there are two dukes in As You Like It, and in some ways a similar real world, dream world kind of thing. The bad duke is going to come back at the end and he doesn't. He, he's, he meets a, a friar on the way and he decides to repent and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't arrive. And I think that too is a doubling point. He's actually already there on stage. And the times I've seen it when it's worked really well, you can see everybody on the stage looking around and thinking, mm, how's this going to work? You know, <laughs> they say he's coming, but it's not going to work. But that raises another point about this book is, as you like it, isn't there. Yeah, I don't. But you do 20 plays yeah. and you make some quite contentious decisions, don't you? Like, I looked for As You Like It because I love it. And, do you? Well, I'm very, I sort of love it, but I'm perplexed by it. I, I sort of feel I need it to be explained to me. Yeah, well, I'm sorry I ducked, I ducked that. Um, I don't really like it, um, but then that's not itself particularly important. I think it's a play where, strangely, there's not enough happens. So it's got a good setup. And it's getting to a good conclusion. But the middle, most of it, is very, very static. It seems to know it's static. They're rather listlessly around in the forest. There's too much singing. I think it's, um, it, it may be some people have felt it's a parody of pastoral, the classical idea of otium and leisure, and that that's it parodically sort of enacted by the play. Uh, but no, I'm afraid I absolutely exploited author's privilege by leaving it out. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this probably relates to another of your points. Is I probably saw a couple of very good productions yeah. of it, and therefore I have. Did you see Juliet Stevenson or yeah. someone? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Uh, so I think that I think that completely can transform your sort of baseline appreciation of a play. Yeah, I, I yeah. see that. And then one of the most interesting pairings, I the first play I looked at because this is a book you can dip into according to. It's yeah, not completely. a play to it's be not, read it's from no, A to it's Z. Not, absolutely. And um, so I read um, the Richard II chapter because I just happened to have gone to see the Richard II at the, at the Globe, at the Globe, mm. which is fabulous. Mm, absolutely. And, um, but, but you pair it with Macbeth in a really interesting way. But one is about a king who's deposed and the other is about a usurper who deposes a king. Yeah, uh, and I think that's a theme that Shakespeare comes back to at different points in his career. The Richard II version of, you know, what's it like to be in a position of power and be deposed is seen pretty much from Richard's point of view. Richard is the dominant stage figure. In Julius Caesar, we've got more of a, which is the next version, I think, of that story. There's a bit more of a balance between, is this about Brutus or is this about Caesar? And we see, in some ways, that the handover in the middle of the play. And then when we come to Macbeth, it's entirely internalised in the mind of, of the murderer. So what Shakespeare doesn't tell us about Bolingbroke in Richard II, which is, why does he do what he does? How does it feel to be him? Uh, what's his take on the situation? He goes into that in you know absolutely extraordinary, terrifying 
satisfying psychological detail, I think, in Macbeth. And you say, uh, you talk about it as the one portrait of a proper sustain, a sustained marriage. Yeah, uh, Shakespeare's not very good on marriages. We either are taking couples sort of up to marriage or we reconnect with families which are really about intergenerational relationships, particularly fathers and sons, sometimes mothers and sons. Shakespeare almost never does mothers and daughters, but he also doesn't really do couples. And, you know, there's a a whole raft of missing spouses, uh, aren't there, through Shakespeare, I mean, Queen Lear and all those kinds of people. (laughs) But Lady Macbeth, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are... A, uh, a working marriage of extraordinary kind of deftness and delicacy, really. It's a folie à deux, you describe it as. Well, I, I, I try to wonder why it is we've been so concerned to apportion blame for what happens. And I think Lady Macbeth, historically, has had a huge amount of the opprobrium for the, for the murder of Duncan, as if she did it herself and as if without her it would never have happened. And she's become you know, an enormously helpful stereotype of the powerful woman or the woman who is not herself in control but is the, the sort of awful scheming wife behind, is the sort of caricature of Hillary Clinton to Bill Clinton or, you know, the Ceausescu's or something. Lady Macbeth is a, is a real political, it's very much a part of political discourse and it's a way of, of suggesting that, that women really are the uh, fiendish, unprincipled people behind their husbands. I wanted to get away from that for all kinds of reasons, but also to look again at the play and to see that they are very deftly, very, very deftly interconnected, as people in long-term relationships are. When Macbeth comes back from seeing the witches and says, the witches say I should be king, I don't think I don't think so. I mean, he says that entirely, as you or I might say, oh, someone said I should apply for this job, but I don't think so, do you? And you know <laughs> that the partner will say, go on, you'd be great. Your trouble is you don't put yourself forward. You're too full of the milk of human kindness. You know, you should have, and, and that they both know what their roles are in that and, and, and that it's very kind of beautifully observed. And I think that feels to me a, a more creative, a more true representation of what Shakespeare's done there than trying to, have one of these court moots where someone tries to get Macbeth off. You know, can you get Macbeth off this charge? You can usually try and do it by saying he has a nagging wife. Now, in the 21st century, you are making your career is based on Shakespeare studies. Is there anybody else who could carry this sort of coverage now? I don't think there is, no. And I think one of the interesting and again paradoxical things about Shakespeare is in some ways he represents the problem about the canon and about the coverage and you know he he attracts to himself all the all, an awful lot of theatrical energy an enormous amount of art subsidy enormous amount of curriculum energy uh, school curriculum energy teaching energy and there are lots and lots of problems with that on the other hand that ubiquity and that cultural reach has meant that it's actually in the performance of Shakespeare that directors have thought about gender switching, about the possibilities or not of colourblind casting. That's the place where, you know, all the stuff about censorship and decolonising the curriculum. Shakespeare's actually a really good hunting ground for a more progressive 
conversation about culture and about literature and what we want it to mean, even as I can see he looks like uh, the ultimate sort of dead white male of canonical caricature. That is so interesting. And we have to remember the date this podcast is going out is the 23rd of April, which is both Shakespeare's birthday and St George's Day, i.e. he has been totally sort of merged with the patron saint of... But but what's so interesting about that is that we don't know that Shakespeare's birthday is the 23rd of April. It's been put with St George's Day in time entirely as part of this happy or perhaps now rather unhappy association of Shakespeare with Englishness. We know when Shakespeare was baptised, but we don't have we don't have anything about his his birth date. So it's it, it is itself a bit of a fiction. And like lots of the fictions about Shakespeare, once you see it as a fiction, you can see, oh, it does a certain amount of work for what we want Shakespeare to do. Yeah. That, well, uh, the, the thing I will take away from this podcast is, is the idea of him being a playpen in which we can discuss our modern identity, how to be modern, which I think is such a brilliant point. And, and you make fantastically in this book. Yeah, well, that's brilliantly put. I don't put it as well as that, I don't think. But maybe ha- a, a playpen to say how to be modern is a great, great tagline. That's Thank your you. next book title. <laughs> Thank you. Much. That was Emma Smith. This is Shakespeare is published by Pelican. Up next, Tashaw. Tash Orr has been charting the transformations of Asian society since his debut novel, The Harmony Silk Factory, was long listed for the Booker Prize in 2005. His last novel, Five Star Billionaire, follows five characters in search of success in contemporary Shanghai. But now he returns to Malaysia, where he grew up, with his latest novel, We the Survivors. So Richard, what drew you to this book? Well, this latest novel is almost like an answer to Five Star Billionaire, which also made the book a long list in 2013 this time. That was five characters who go to Shanghai in search of success. The city of Shanghai is almost another character in the novel itself. Whereas this latest one, We the Survivors, is one character who stays in Malaysia and looks back on a lifetime where he's found various sorts of failure. I mean, it's a much quieter novel. Most of it is, is Ahok, the main character, just talking to a PhD student, Sun Min, about his life. He tells her about his childhood in the village, about the back-breaking work he has first as a waiter and then on a fish farm where he becomes a manager, and also about the senseless murder which throws his life off course. And it also shines a light on migration. I mean, we're all familiar with stories about people from Afghanistan, Eritrea, Syria and so on making the journey across the Mediterranean to get to Europe or coming up through the the bulk of Europe to get to the slightly more westerly bits. Or indeed, we're familiar with people from South America travelling up to the USA in the the caravans. But there's also an enormous movement of people across Asia as well, which is much less familiar to us in the West. Or himself was born in Taipei and grew up in Kuala Lumpur. And he's part of this great mixture, this great movement, which is still ongoing. And We the Survivors charts these shifts as well, as well as more recent waves of immigration from Bangladesh and Myanmar. And it looks very carefully at the hierarchies that these these waves of immigration have produced over there. So when he came to the studio, I asked him to begin by reading from the novel. It's a passage where Ahok has just received a promotion. The word foreman stayed in my head as I washed myself in the makeshift shower we'd built in the shade of some trees. The newness of the word spun gently in my head, as clear as the sunlight that was filtering through the thin canopy of leaves above, falling around me like shards of splintered glass. Maybe there was something wrong in my eyes that day, maybe I'd been working too long in the sun. I understood that I would hold power over other human beings, that it was possible for me to impose my will on the actions of men who were just like me, whose bodies worked like mine, 
whose desperation and joy I not only recognized but shared. Were we friends? Of course not. I never went to their lodgings, they never came to mine. In the evenings, they disappeared into the night and I withdrew to my own space. We understood that we would never be buddies, but somehow that drew us together. Friendship is not a requirement for closeness. During the day, those long, long days under the sun and rain, we experienced pain in the same way, and satisfaction and laughter too, but mostly hardship, and that is what bound us. Now, someone had given me the right to tell these men what to do. In the space of a few seconds, we were no longer the same. Perhaps we had never been, and I had been a fool to think otherwise. It sounds stupid, but all at once I did feel different from them. As I walked back to the grey concrete box that housed the office, I looked at the men shoveling sand and cement, wheeling barrow loads of hardcore, carrying sacks of grit on their shoulders. Not one of them looked up at me. They just continued in exactly the same way. It was as if they knew that something had changed, that I had detached from their world and no longer belonged to them. I didn't know what to do. I felt like calling out to them, making a joke about Adi's permanent limp or how Bayou couldn't stop talking while he worked, the usual bad jokes we made all the time. But it didn't feel right. A space had opened up between us and they recognized it as much as I did. Mr. Lai was nearby, walking down the jetty, and if I called out to the men and joked with them, he'd have heard and said something nasty. I had no choice but to walk on. I want to start by asking, so where did it begin? How did you hit upon Lee Hock Lai as the key to unlocking this story of vertiginous change in Southeast Asia? Lee Hock Lai, who everyone calls Ahok, is someone who I've, I've known. He's not a real person, but he's very close to, for example, you know, my cousins, my first cousins. He's very close to you know, all the people I grew up with. And so really in that way, he represents you know, part of my personal history. And that was really you know, what formed the, the, the bedrock of this story. Because your, your roots uh, are in Malaysia yourself. Yeah, you know, I come from an immigrant ethnic Chinese family from Malaysia. So, you know, although I've always grown up with a Malaysian identity, I, I, that's how I identify, being ethnically Chinese and being an immigrant has always been part of my consciousness. And so, you know, w- what I wanted to do from the outset is to try and capture the changing experience of not just Southeast Asia, but, but the particular experience of being an immigrant, uh, being an ethnic minority in a country that has a complicated relationship with with immigrants. Mm, I mean, he's also kind of this interlocking position, isn't he? He's a village boy who goes to the big city and kind of interacts with the people who are making all this money. He's this, this kind of crux point. Yeah, you know, you know, we live in a in a world where where narratives of, of modern Asia, modern Southeast Asia, abound, and most of these narratives are built on this idea, this illusion of great material wealth. You know, everyone's obsessed by billionaire Asians and rich Asians. But the reality is that that money is concentrated in the hands of very, very few people. And the majority, the vast majority of people are like Li Hock Lai. They're not starving. They have jobs. But these jobs are very precarious. Literally backbreaking. They are. I mean, they they often, you know, they have a huge toll on, on people's physical health. They destroy the body. But part of these Asian narratives requires 
us to normalize these experiences. You know, the, a lot of most people in Asia live incredibly harsh lives. I mean, they're surviving. You know, hence you know, we, the survivors. But they're encouraged to believe that these hardships are normal. So Hoklai does not have any idea of his life being harsh. He thinks this is normality. But in fact, it's not normal. It, it's incredibly brutal. And it's the the necessary flip side of all that shiny wealth. Yeah, you know, I I don't know if it's a. It's certainly the flip side. I'm not sure if it's a necessary flip side. You know, I, I think that the, the concentration of wealth in the tiny minority in Asia is indicative of a gulf between rich and, and poor that's much sharper than even in the West. And in the West, it is it is sharp. But in Asia, it's much more pronounced. And it's almost as if the system willfully relegates people to lives that really will never change and, and, and you know have very little cause for optimism, while all the time giving them the illusion that they can change their lives. He's also a lens onto the kind of the, the changes in terms of development, just building houses in terms of mm. the pollution in terms of the climate change as well that's sweeping through the region. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's been a, a you know, there's been a real social cost to the relentless development that we've experienced over the, the last 20 or 30 years and you know I I I I'm not saying you know the economic growth has been a bad thing it's been a good thing for most people, but it's left a lot of people behind and it's all, there's also been a very high ecological environmental cost to that you know what, what we do in in terms of of the destruction of the countryside the forests the sea, the pollution of the seas i mean all that is becoming pressing because in malaysia now like many other southeast asian countries is a middle class country you know it's uh, it's got getting to the point where things have to be held in balance and material wealth the growth of material wealth has to be balanced against other considerations like the protection of the environment and it also it means that the solutions that might be found outside that system become impossible like the, the village's cockle beds or the the farm that ahok winds up digging out of the soil with his mother and then is swept away by the spring tide no, absolutely. I mean, the, the, you know, the weather is becoming much more unpredictable. You know, the effect of weather seems to be much more violent, just the way, the way that you know, the effect of social changes is becoming much more sort of visceral in its effect on ordinary people. And really, it is the majority of ordinary people who who suffer from that. You know, the, the, the ultra-rich, you know, the, the, the Asians who are very popular, you know, who become the visible face of Asia in media, both in the West and within Asia itself. They don't bear the brunt of any of this. And is this precariousness? Is this partly why Ahok feels status so very keenly? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Asia over the last sort of thirty or forty years has been has been a place full of narratives of self-growth, of the possibility of change. So, you know, I was brought up in an age of unbridled optimism. We were taught to believe that we could change our lives just by working hard, just by going to school and applying ourselves. But in fact. Asia, like every other part of the world, has structures. It has privilege. It has people who have much more privilege than others, and, and privilege breeds privilege. And what you have is, is now a whole bunch of people who are trapped in a certain kind of kind of, of life and a certain kind of job, who, you know, hard as they, they might try, they aren't really easily going to get out of that trap. And always at the bottom are the most recent migrants. Absolutely. So now what you have is, you know, in, in countries that are newly middle class or aspiring middle class like, like Malaysia, migrants from Bangladesh, Nepal, from Myanmar, who are the new, the new immigrants. And the particular tragedy 
of this situation is that they are now doing the jobs and being treated in the way that our grandparents or great-grandparents were treated. And yet, unthinkingly, we meet out to them the same treatment that was meted out to us. And it's just this very, for me, ironic and very tragic cycle of violence that we seem incapable of breaking out. It's out a, of. almost unnoticed as well. I mean, when he goes to the plantations with his friend Kyong to look for some migrant workers, he makes the realisation that all these settlements everywhere, that's exactly how you would hide a great bunch of people, is just putting them in plain sight. Well, exactly. I mean, and also, you know, they, they live in towns, they live in cities, and, and they're just there, you know, in huge numbers. But because they don't, have a valid position in society. They don't have an official position in society. They're just, they're really there as a human resource. They're, they're just used for their bodies, what their bodies, the kind of work that their bodies can can fulfill for the rest of, of society. They build buildings, they, they work in plantations. But because we don't acknowledge their presence, we also don't acknowledge them as people. We don't acknowledge them as, as human beings. And so they become just a pure resource. You're like a kind of a grist to the capitalist mill. Yeah, and you know, I think it's particularly painful for me to, to witness because it's exactly the kind of people that generations of Southeast Asian societies have been built on. You know, Southeast Asia is really built on waves of immigration and our, our recent inability to absorb new immigrants uh, and our confusion as to how we absorb them, I think is, you know, to me, a, 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 you know, a great source of frustration. Most of the novel is Ahok just talking, as he mm. says, as he recounts his life to a young PhD student, Tan Sun Min, uh, interspersed also with his account of their interviews from yeah. time to time as well. Why did you want to tell it in this form? Was it a way of putting the reader into the frame? Yeah, but I, so many reasons. I, I think you know, Tan Su Min, you know, represents the other half. She, you know, she, she is. She's almost a kind of a polar opposite, isn't yeah, she? Yeah. Sometimes I think about about them as, as you know, really be occupying. They're two parts of of myself. Mm. You know, Ahok is is the the part of myself that that represents parts of my family that didn't make it out of the countryside that that still you know struggle to to keep afloat. Tan Su Min is is the me now, you know, the one who, who managed to escape. She comes from slightly different background from parents who are slightly more fortunate, you know, who you know, who've had jobs and who moved to the to, to the city. She therefore has a completely different view of the world. So they have a different view of relationships, they have a different view of politics. So, you know, for her politics is a matter of it's a matter of principle. It's a matter of morality. You know, she's an activist. Yeah, she wants to go on demonstrations. She yeah. goes on demonstrations. You know, for her, a change in, in government, a change in the political regime is something I mean she fights for, she she, she believes in that. But for Ahok, no matter you know, governments can come and go, they can change and his life is still going to be the same. And there's a sense in, in which he's so distanced from the centers of power that that he's incapable of, see, uh, of seeing how a change in the government can affect his life. And so each, although she's very well-meaning, she means to engage in a dialogue with him, she also has to acknowledge that she comes from a completely different social background. And that's something that mirrors my own experience of, of writing about the novel and wanting to write about a certain kind of person is, is the acknowledgement that I, by virtue of the education I now have and the job I now do, I'm not that person anymore. And so it, really the book is, is a dialogue between those two parts of Asian society that have fragmented and, and, and sort of distanced 
themselves from each other over the last 20 years. And uh, by implication also, I mean, in the same way that Tan Sun Min is encountering this story, is recording it, is analysing mm. it, by implication that's the reader as well. We're all complicit in this system which puts these people through these brutal lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're sort of at once fascinated by them but also kept at, at a distance but there's also a slightly, slightly different and quite complicated dynamic at work which is that she is transcribing his words it's his story but she has the power to record it formally so she has the power to choose the words she's also doing quite a lot of translation as she does it so she frames his, his story yeah absolutely so there is this undercurrent of you know what we do what 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 writers do, you know, here I am trying to do my best to give visibility, to give a voice to people who might not necessarily find their place in literature. You know, part of the, the, the initial motivation for writing the novel was to, to give visibility to what I see all the time in, in Malaysia, but never find its way into, into literature. And, and literally give it a voice, because we hear him talking. Yes, absolutely. But what I'm actually doing is what Dan Sumin is doing, which is that I'm choosing the words for him. I'm giving formality to his words. I'm, I'm making it readable. I'm making it structurally acceptable. And so what that does you know, ethically is a question that the novel also poses. The, the two of them have a, a rapport, they form a, a rapport, there's a huge gulf between them. And part of the novel I is how they discover that they're both different and very similar. I guess you say there's kind of ethical issues involved in, mm. in the writing of it. How did you go about researching it? You say that the, these are, that Ahok is almost like some of your, your own family, but how did you go about researching his story, get, getting some sort of being faithful to the experience? Well, you know, because a, you know, a lot of the, the story of the, the, the grandparents' immigration, for example, is just a story of my grandparents. So it's, you know, a lot of it's a family story. So it, it's stories I grew up with. It's stories I, I'm, I'm part of, you know, I'm really part of that story. So it really didn't require any research. I mean, in terms of, you know, how how do I know how a Bangladeshi foreign worker lives in Malaysia? Well, all you have to do is talk to someone. You know, to t it's, it doesn't require you to, to 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 do extraordinary things. It requires you to be sort of inquisitive and curious about the world you live in and, and about the people who are who are really you know physically present in your everyday life. All but, around you. Yeah, yeah but you but but uh, you know, to whom you turn a blind eye most of the time. And so, you know, we, we live in, I think what, what troubles me about the world we live in now is that we do, and we have done for a very long time, live in a society where people come from all kinds of different backgrounds and who, who come from all kinds of different deprivation. But we've somehow successfully found ways to turn our backs against that. You know, it's very, it's very easy, your natural reflex when you're walking down the street and there's, there's a homeless person with a sort of a plastic cup. You know, the natural reflex is, is to turn your back. You know, someone in the tube comes asking for money. The natural reflex is to put your head down and, and not acknowledge that as part of your daily life. And as a society, we do that all the time. Mm, you say that you wanted to, one of the ambitions of the novel was to show something of these lives that we turn away from, that we ignore. And Ahok at first says he wanted to protect Sun Min. He wanted to, to not tell her the, the awfulness of some of the stories of, from the migrants. And then he changes his mind. He thinks that he wants, her, he wants these terrible stories to hang over her like a cloud. Was this also something that you think you want to do for your readers? You want to have this awfulness hang over us like a cloud? <laughs> I, actually, you know, now that you mentioned it, I, I, I didn't think of this consciously, but I, now that you mentioned it, I, I think, yes, absolutely. You know, this is what a lot of people have to 
have to live with in, in Asia. You know, we have to live with with things that trouble our our conscience all the time. And yet, when it's written about, when it makes its way into into literature, somehow it it doesn't. The violence isn't captured. The the deprivation isn't captured. The nuances aren't captured. And so, what I wanted to do is introduce all that and make it inescapable. Having said that, one of the reasons that that Ahok says he wants to to, to do is to protect Sumin from the horror, because you know he he thinks well she's, you know, an elegant person from the city. She doesn't have a place. A nice young it. lady. Yes, exactly. You know, he has all that you know old fashioned sort of Asian male thing going on. But what it also suggests is that he's ashamed of the experiences that he's had in life. He's ashamed of his own life because in Asia. The bigger shame is poverty. You, you can admit, admit to all sorts of different things, but what you don't admit to is poverty because of this narrative that we talked about earlier of needing to be, you know, materially successful, needing to be rich, needing to be, needing to live up to a certain expectation that society has created. You know, these these new narratives of, of blingy rich Asia are not just something created by the the West. It's something that Asian countries have willfully embraced because it makes us feel confident. It makes us sort of feel as if we're not countries that have been colonized for you know two or three hundred years it, it's part of a new new identity but the problem with and i'm all for cre- the creation of new identity i'm all for cre- the, the creation of, of of sweeping i don't i'm not nostalgically attached to you know for example old buildings you know built by dutch or, or british colonials I'm, I'm not nostalgically attached to them and so i'm really all for the creation of of, of new national identities but what I'm against is the homogenizing of that new narrative in that somehow destroying the complicated pasts and the complicated histories that we've had. We summarize the new identity in something that doesn't acknowledge the fact that people live lots of different kinds of lives in our society and that ma- the majority of people are not represented by this new narrative of, of bright, successful Asia. With thanks to Tash Orr. So is it a heavy novel, Richard? Well, it certainly deals with some difficult subjects, and it's quite difficult to read in some part because he just has such an awful time. But there's also this relationship between Ah Hook and Sun Min, which is very nicely drawn. Well, We the Survivors is published by Fourth Estate, and it's out now. Next week, Joe Dunthorne reveals how writing poetry for his new collection, O Positive, has come as a necessary respite from novel writing. And Sarah Crossan's long-form narrative poem novel, Toffee, crosses generations to find connection between two people whose voices are otherwise not being heard. And as always, do please contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Sean Kane. From me, Claire Armistead. Me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye.